Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Well, welcome to Notes from the Field. I'm your host, Will Boyd, here with Dr. Gordon Wilson. And this is the show where we get out into the field. It could be a literal field or an entire field of study. From grasshoppers to galaxies, the created universe is our study site. Our goal, to present a biblical approach for engaging with nature and to talk about the processes and phenomenon that are manifested in the creation we've been blessed to have dominion over. So, Will, great to be here. What do you want to talk about today? Well, there's a buzz out there, my mm. friend, and hearing lots of buzzing. And some of it, you know, that buzzing when it gets close to your there ear. There are good buzzes and bad yeah, buzzes. Yeah, exactly. There are good buzzes and bad buzzes in creation. And so I thought we'd spend some time talking about these remarkable pollinators out there. Mm. Some of the pollinators are buzzers. Yeah. 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 There's a lot. Yeah. Buzzers, you know, from birds. Yeah, hummingbirds, hummingbirds do make kind of a buzzing sound. They hum anyway. And, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of, we normally think of pollinators as just insects, but you've got bats that pollinate, you've got birds that pollinate, even lizards, some mm. lizards pollinate. Wow. So there's a lot of variety out there. Yeah, and the summertime is, is really the, the time to see these creatures in action. And this touches a little bit on a, a previous episode regarding just the value of biodiversity right the good lord created plants and met the flowering plants needing to get that pollen which has uh, what becomes sperm cells inside of it over to the receiving end right so that you can fertilize the uh female part of the plant the female part of the flower yeah you've got the pollen on the anther and and um all that so we can eat and have remarkable plant yeah, life to right. observe. And so we're just going to talk a little bit about maybe the breadth of those pollinators, who all, who all is in that camp, and maybe pick a few to single out and spend a little bit of extra time on. Well, do you want to talk about just the, a little bit of the intricacies? What is pollination? That sounds fabulous. Well, just real what quick. What is this process? Yeah. Pollination, we sort of mentioned, is just the... Um, the delivery of pollen from uh, the male part of the plant, the stamen, and the pollen-bearing part of the stamen is the anther. And on a quiz, you better get the right anther. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the uh, when pollen is transferred to the stigma, the stigma is the top of the female part, and then uh, the pollen grain, if it's the right species, imbibes and uh, the fluid and a pollen tube grows down through the stigma, down through the style, uh, which is the neck of the pistil, and then to an ovule, which is an immature seed, and in that immature seed is an egg, and the sperm in the pollen grain travels down the pollen tube and fertilizes the egg uh, inside the ovule, the immature seed, and then the zygote grows into a tiny embryonic plant and then grows to a certain size and then sort of stops 
as suspended animation, sort of. And then we call that a seed. That is incredible. And just all of the mechanisms that govern that whole process is just mind boggling. And you've got just over 300,000 different kinds of flowering plants, all having lots of, you know, some are basic pollination. But there's a lot of weird twists on that general overview I just gave. So pollinators are super important. I mean, some things just are wind pollinated like grass and conifers aren't flowering plants, but they do have pollen and they're wind pollinated as well. But a lot of uh, flowering plants require uh, some sort of um, agent to pick up the pollen and bring it over to the stigma. Yeah. And they sort of do it inadvertently. Agents. Because they're after nectar or they're after pollen itself and they get dusted with pollen on the anth- by the anthers and then bring it over and pollinate. So these flowering plants, this is, this is remarkable um, and maybe, maybe a surprise for some folks that they, they have sexual reproduction. Yeah. Just sexual. like animals do. Well, but it, yeah, it, when I, mean, I say just, sexual, but it, it's, it is, it requires a sperm and an egg. Yeah. It's not the same as you pointed out. Yeah. Fertilization happened. But what a remarkable process of that pollen going down the, the, that style yeah. and finding the ovule. Incredible. Yeah. It's, it is incredible. And there's so many different insects that pollinate. We normally think of bees, but um, there's a, a number of wasps and beetles and flies butterflies, moths. Yeah. Tremendous number of pollinators out there. And we absolutely rely on them. And I would say a lot of big farms, small gardens, of course, too, but these enterprises absolutely rely on the pollinators as well. Right. Because their fruit, whatever they're farming, their fruit doesn't necessarily develop unless the seeds, um, unless there's uh, successful pollination the seeds when they start to grow from the ovule when they when you have fertilization the seeds start to develop and that causes fruit development now there's a way to do an end run and you know sometimes we manipulate the plant and cause you know with hormone artificial hormones plant hormones to make the fruit develop without the pollinator right but Generally speaking, you need the pollinator to pollinate and fertilize the egg in the ovule, develop seed, and then the seed makes the ovary of the pistil grow into a fruit. Yes, fruits are ripened ovaries. Some people might not want to know that. (laughs) Yeah. I remember when I was uh, a new faculty member at Liberty University, my oldest, Brooke, she was six years old eating a cluster of grapes for lunch in the uh, dining room. And she said, boy, these are good ovaries. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, what I, what have I done? Dinner conversations what did, have what left. I, what have I done to my child? <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, one of the, uh, one of the scenes that uh, I haven't seen it in person, I've read about it and heard of some audio and video about, seen some video of it, of one of the most remarkable pollination events that happens here in the U.S. Uh, is the the almond, uh, the almond groves in Central mm-hmm. California, and the the extent of which they require pollination is really, I would say, above and beyond what most 
uh, plants require. They're very, very specific. Mm -hmm. And in in just um, doing some research earlier today, um, apparently about 90% of the U.S.'s honeybees spend their winter in the Central Valley of California. This is according to a Washington State University. 90%. 90%. And so these massive apiaries where they, where they grow honeybees and then they lease them, they lease those honeybees, they truck them via semi to the Central Valley of California and those honeybees overwinter and they pollinate uh, the almond trees. And so this is, you know, maybe 50%-ish of the world's almond supply growing there in the Central Valley of California. But can you imagine the smell and the sounds of that? Yeah. It's 90% of all? Supposedly 90% of the U.S.'s uh, honeybee colonies. Honeybee colonies. Yeah. Are that's there amazing. Isn't why, that shocking? Why? I, I mean, I know that's they're so growing big that area. they require that many. I think it also the added benefit of having a place for them to overwinter. Uh, lots of the U.S. that uh, the climate is such that the bees don't overwinter well, okay. and so and a, they need pollinators. So many other places in the United States, although there's more crops, it's mostly grains, and they don't need pollinators. Bingo. So I see. Yeah, kind of an amazing phenomenon happening down there. The WSU has been more and more active in researching honeybees in the past maybe five or ten years, and they have a study going. This is Washington State University in, in the eastern part of Washington. They send down about 150 colonies annually, and they're researching pollination, and they're just kind of modeling the population of, of their honeybees to better understand them. So the WSU Entomology Department, which we have an entomologist right here with us today. Because yeah, that was your well, master's that degree, That was right? my master's, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say I'm... So actor. you're a master of entomology. Yeah, well... And a philosopher of turtles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my first love was reptiles, but uh, I was really, really fortunate. And I'm glad, no regrets, that uh, God directed me into entomology uh, for my master's. Yeah. And I still am one of my best, most... Uh, favorite classes that I've ever taken in grad school was uh, insect ID. So it's a it's a huge huge field. And if you want to work on humility, just go into entomology. Just because there's so many so many different insects, somewhere around a million um, described species. Wow! Uh, they may have crested that number, and that number will keep going up as they explore. But yeah. Did you study any pollinators when you were You work? know, I, I was a generalist. I didn't have, I was a non-thesis. And so I just got to enjoy studying insects in general. The Aldrich Entomology Club had a, they were keeping some bees. And I remember helping another grad student out at the beehive, you know, once. But yeah, beekeeping is not my shtick. As no. they say, it's amazing to interact with beekeepers and, and yeah, visit my, my daughters. My daughter's one. Oh, fantastic! She's, I mean, she's got a hive over at her sister's house, and she loves it. She doesn't wear a whole lot of protection when she's going in. She's a bee whisperer. Yeah, she's a bee whisperer. I remember. I think she was hiving once, and she had her bee bonnet on. That's just that's it. The bee bonnet shorts. You know, tank top Birkenstocks, you know, and she's trusting of these creatures. Oh man. And yeah, she didn't never got stung. She has been stung, but she generally is 
pretty lucky. Freestyle. Freestyle. I yeah. like it. That's awesome. We've talked uh, kind of broadly about different types of uh, pollinators, mentioned many varieties of insects, even reptiles, birds. Maybe just chat here quickly about a pollinator observation uh, that we've gotten to experience. And the one that comes to me, which is, it's not a pollination event exactly, but I was, I thought of it today. I was, I was listening to a couple of podcasts and there was a photo of a rainbow lorikeet on the- Yeah, they're beautiful. Oh, they're beautiful. And so I got to spend a a semester in Sydney, Australia at Macquarie University. And we learned from our friends who were Australian students there that you could put a little, uh, like a jar lid on your windowsill and fill it with honey. And the lorikeets would come and lap the honey up on your windowsill. And so that became one of our favorite pastimes was watching these insanely raucous, loud flocks of rainbow lorikeets. Do they have anything to do with the, I mean, they like the honey, but do they? No, that just happens to be a pollinator. So we were, we were giving that lorikeet something that it gets but from it is a poll- flowers. They are pollinators. Okay. Lorikeets are. And so they get in, they dive head first into those flowers. And try to so get as much nectar as they can. they must be big flowers. I mean, because yeah. they're a parrot. They're a small, parrot. small parrot. I'd say parakeet size, maybe a little bit larger than your budget regard. Yeah. Um, and there are some, yeah, the floral life in Australia is, is kind of bizarre, as I'm sure you know. Um, and lots of sturdy flowers that can withstand a larger pollinator like that. But I, I always think about those rainbow lorikeets. I think of uh, one memorable thing, because we have our certain, you know, the stereotype pollinator is a bee. And when I was watching um, a nature documentary way back, it was called Nature, actually, with George Page, the narrator. Mm. And um, it was on the saguaro cactus. Yeah. And it had some really good footage at night of bats hovering at the saguaro uh, flowers. Wow. And sticking their, their nose in the, flower, the saguaro cactus flower, uh, lapping up the nectar. And getting totally the fur on the bat's face and neck, getting dusted with pollen, and then going over to another saguaro flower and pollinating. That's got you know the Lord must just take great joy in watching his creatures do what they're supposed to do, and, mm-hmm. and these mutualistic relationships they must just honor him so much. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's really fun to to see. Uh, hummingbirds, we have a hummingbird feeder on our front porch and several species coming in. They're very, very territorial at the feeder, but they also go to the various flowering shrubs in our front yard and, um, you know, stick there, hover beautifully. It's just fantastic to see a hummingbird, you know, hover in one place and then stick their bill down into the flower with their long tongue lick up the nectar and of course they're getting dusted with uh, pollen taking it to another flower and we you know when we see things sort of daily this is uh, again my one of the themes i'd like to talk about is the magnificence of the mundane um, often when we see something well hummingbirds are always cool even if you uh see them for fairly often in mm-hmm. the summer it's easy to if you stop learning then something that you've seen several times becomes mundane. But if you always probe a little deeper, you know, and say, what, what kind of hummingbird? Don't just be content at, oh, that's a hummingbird. But 
read up if you can identify read up on it or read up on try to identify what what kind of bee what kind of fly yeah. is coming in now that's really tough that might be another topic you know because there's so many species out there and it always helps us to stay fresh and curious about life around us if we don't get bored yeah. With the mundane. Yeah. No, that's good. You know, I think there's some principles of Christian living there too, analogous. You spend 15, 30 extra seconds watching, you might see something different. And that's that's how the Lord wants us to have our social interactions too. Right. We yeah. see the same people every day, some of us. Right. And so we can be tempted to be bored, bored with them, uninterested, yeah. not engaging. Right. And if we get to know them a little bit more, then they become interesting. Yeah. And it's the same, um, it's like, wow. That person's really interesting. I didn't think they were. How many people have thought that of us? Because they didn't take the time. They look at us and go, oh, that was, that's a boring looking chap. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get to know them. And, you know, there's times where I thought, oh, you know, they're, they might not be an interesting looking person. They, and so we sort of think, okay, their personality is probably not very interesting because they don't look interesting. They're like a yellow jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so to just push yourself into looking a little farther and uh, getting to know the flora and fauna in our yard. And sometimes it takes a little extra help, you know, a professional or an amateur um, to help boost you and help you get through finding what it is. That takes a lot of work. There's yeah. some discipline because God didn't just make a dozen critters. He made thousands in your area and yeah. uh, you, you can easily misidentify things and go down the wrong path. But it just keeps us fresh, keeps us curious and uh, keeps us from being bored yeah. with the world around us. We can't just fly to some exotic destination every time, every day. We have to get comfortable with place, our place, yeah, our people. That's good. Our, our church. I mean, applying it to the Christian community, our people get to know our people, get to know our flora, get to know our fauna, and glorify God in it. I know I'm getting a little no, off topic, that's but good. you know, keep it on topic. Just yeah, get to know your pollinator. Yeah, one helpful uh, tool that I've had students use. In fact, this past year when we had the COVID close down of things and needed to come up with a, a project. Um, I had students do a virtual insect collection where they took photos of insects and identified them as best they could. And the resource that I like the most right now, at least, is called Bug Guide. Uh, it's just a layman's tool, but it's very it's very well managed. Um, there are forums there, um, and there's fantastic photographs and taxonomy of virtually any insect you can think of, any insect group in North America. Yeah. Really and, good tool. And it's good when you're an amateur to... Be content with higher levels of categories. Yeah. It's sometimes pretty hard unless you have a very unique specimen, a very unique uh, fly or beetle. It's pretty hard to get to, to species. Um, Absolutely. So, it's, it's just good to learn, you know, what's a beetle, you know, and be able to tell the difference between a beetle and a bug. Yep. Um, and that, that's a big step right there. And flies, you know, a lot of flies look like yellow jackets. And some other flies look like bumblebees. And some look like, you know, honeybees. There's a hoverfly called, I, don't, I forget the name, but it's in the family hoverfly and they are yellow jacket mimics. 
and some hoverflies are honeybee mimics. And um, but if you know a fly, you get to know the gestalt, and you go that everybody else is having a fit. They're 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 knocking over the picnic basket, and, yeah. you know, trying to get out of dodge, get getting away from this threatening thing that they think they they are convinced is going to terminate their their <laughs> their their legacy, <laughs> their, their day, their their ruin their day, and and. And if you know, hey, that's a fly. That's a hoverfly, it's, guys. That's a hoverfly, and it's not even going to hurt you. You can grab it, and it's not even going to sting you. Oh, that's funny. But so things like that is just, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and um, I like to I like to um, look at flowers and notice insects, and then the next time I see that same flower, hey, I wonder if there's a similar insect on this flower. Right. And hollyhocks are one that I remember being kind of amazed by this. There's this greenish looking, for lack of a, I'm going to show my layman-ness oh, right now. Fine. It was a sweat bee, I call them. A smaller, uh, kind of was it a metallic, metallic green? green bee. It's very well could be a sweat bee. Okay. But there are some cuckoo wasps that oh, are yeah. metallic green. That's right. And uh, they, they definitely have a different look about them. But, you know, if you're looking superficially. Yeah. I saw a lot of this type of greenish looking small bee in uh, multiple hollyhocks. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, it wasn't a scientific study, but it, it was fun. Yeah. It was just so fun you to know, think about the patterns and, and which insects select which yeah. flowers and yeah. why. Because some pollinators are very, they're, they're generalists. They've got the equipment as far as lapping nectar and they can visit all sorts of flowers. You know, honeybees are good generalists. And that's why you can have these different kinds of honey because it really depends you know, clover honey or uh, wildflower honey or even uh, yellow star thistle honey, which is sort of a greenish hue. Oh, wow. Um, so, they, they are very competent at, at harvesting uh, nectar from all sorts of flowers, whereas some insects are specialists and they um, have a very limited menu as to what kinds of flowers they visit. Mm. And in some places, particularly the tropics, where there's this high level of specialization, where one species of insect uh, pollinates one species of flower, and you don't have you don't have overlap. Yeah. Um, so the tropics tends to get pretty specialized. Not one hundred percent, but it's interesting. No, that is, and I like that connection to us. In a more, maybe a more practical way, there are different, there are different types of honey out there and there are different colors and slightly different flavors. A friend of mine gave me some buckwheat honey once mm. and it was dark and it tasted oh, yeah. almost like molasses. I know. Oh, wow. It was yeah. good stuff. So explore those gardens, explore, walk down the street. When you go on a walk, look in those, in the, in the neighbor's flower beds that are next to the sidewalk. Yeah. Look at the honey aisle at the store and see what, what types of honey you yeah. might be able to sample. Yeah, it's good to just sit down. If it's not too hot and uncomfortable, sit down and in your mom's flower garden and uh, just be still. Be. Yeah, be still so that the bees <laughs> come near and really look at the detail. I have a dissecting scope at home and uh, I love to, when we have guests over for dinner, I'd love to bring, whether it's adult or some, some of their kids into my office and uh 
have them look at a few insects under the dissecting scope. Awesome. And Captive they, audience. Oh, man. I have never had anyone just go, well, that's dumb or that's boring. <laughs> it just opens up a whole new world yeah. for them. When you see a fly, even a house fly, which you have no trouble grabbing the fly swatter and swatting. Dispatching. But I pin it on an insect pin, pin it into a, a wine cork and, and so that I, I get a good side view, stick it under the microscope. It's a dissecting scope, so it's 3D. It's not like your typical compound microscopes with glass slides where you're really looking at really high power microscopic things. These are things you can see with the naked eye, but you enlarge them yeah, uh, so that this housefly is now the size of your fist. And you're looking at all of, and the light is shining on it. And you're looking at all of the sculpturing and all of the bristles and the compound eyes and where the antennae are placed on their head compared to a wasp. And you can look at a fly and a wasp and you begin to see the difference. Even if the fly, as I mentioned before, flies can have these colorations like the yellow, black, yellow, black, and they're masquerading as a yellow jacket, but put them under the microscope and you start to notice this is Some so, of those features jump so out. much of a fly, yeah. you know. The only thing that looks yellow jackety is their yellow jack, you know. Um, Flies can wear yellow jackets yeah. if, they, if yeah. they want to. It's a but special everything occasion. else, you know, their body shape, their, their head, everything, their wings just looks like a fly. But you can't look superficially at the color. You have to look at the, the uh, architecture, the sculpturing of it. And so I'm staying sort of on the pollination topic because I'm talking about flies and wasps, but, you know, there's obviously practical applications like uh, some people might not be interested in looking at the details of a honeybee, but they're very interested in the practical entrepreneurial aspects of, you know, having a beehive and yeah. getting a lot of honey and Absolutely. selling a lot of honey. And that's totally fine. That's engaging with God's creation. Yeah, that is. And yeah. that's good. But also, it's great to stop and smell the roses and the pollinators on it and see God's glory, even if you're not invested in it in a monetary yeah. sort of way. Exactly. But, you know, more power to you if you're the great beekeeper that makes pot loads of honey and great but it would be great for those people to you know be still and know that i am god look at the details of the of the uh honeybee absolutely gordon it's good chatting with you that's good chatting with you will as always and uh i hope to see you next time all right see you guys next time bye, bye.